It's time. Bring the wood. Bring the hammer. Hammer down. You know who brings the hammer all the time, OG? The Navy. Absolutely. On behalf of the men and women here in the basement, making this podcast for your entertainment. I could say edutainment. And education. I don't like edutainment. I don't. Nah, we're not. Uh, we're not an edutainment no, podcast. No. Let's go for entertainment with some education along with it. But on behalf of the men and women making this project, people that make this all go, helping our country, big shout out to the men and women in our armed forces. And also on behalf of Navy Federal Credit Union, OG, let's go stack some Benjamins, huh? Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Live from Joe's Bob's basement, it's... The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it's giving season. But how do you decide where to give your hard-earned dollars? What questions should you ask a charitable cause? We'll help you give better with the author of The Philanthropy Revolution, Lisa Greer. Plus... Feel like you're underpaid? In today's headline segment, we'll share one way some people have doubled their income. And of course, I'll also make sure there's time for my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who are already givers of high fives instead of paying raises because, and I quote, they're the same thing and you can't get taxed on them. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. We have Mel Robbins on last week, and she talked about how important high fives are, OG, so... We have started incorporating that. Why hold back? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the We Might Have Misunderstood That Conversation podcast. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter, and across the card table from me for another Monday, kicking off another week, ready to go. It's Mr. OG. Ready to rock and roll. We were going to record video, and you said, I'm not ready for video today. You're looking good. You look fine. Nice of you to say. But yeah, I've got, I got some work to do up here. Got to glam up a little bit. <laughs> that's there's nothing that's going to get better. I mean, I Wrong. don't want to don't want to spoil the ending. But can it you just believe is, that it's already the fourth quarter? It is fantastic. It's pumpkin spice latte season, my friend. It's, it's been that since September first. It's almost peppermint latte season. It is. It, see, now we go from sweet to just too sweet. I can't do the peppermint. We've had this. This is a recurring annual conversation we have. I like them more in theory than in than in actual than in practice. Principle. Yeah. Like when I get one, I'm like, this is awesome. And then I feel like there's so much more milk in my belly right now. I need to take a nap. You get about a third of the way done. You're like, I, I think got I've the had shakes. My- I got the shakes from the espresso and the sugar. <laughs> I've had my sugar intake for the last three months. So much lactose. It's just so good. So much lactose, so little time. You know what other quarter it is? It's giving quarter. A lot of people plan their giving for this time of year. We've got Lisa Greer coming down to the basement. Oh, gee, she's somebody who has had over 200 events at her home. Turns a lot of people into philanthropists. But she also talks about how bad the business of raising money is and how disconnected it is from what we all want. In fact, there's a bunch of money sitting in donor-advised funds right now because people can't figure out what they really, really want to do with the money. Lisa Greer here today to talk about that, but we've got, 
We got a heck of a headline. We've got the TikTok minute. So much to do. So little time. So let's roll into it. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, we checked that box off. Now we can roll into it. Let's move. Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. This is what I love about this show, is that so much of it is user-created. Today, friends of ours brought us a lot of stuff. Patrick wrote me an email. I thought, oh, gee, this would be good to talk about. This comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. It's a piece that's written by Rachel Feinzig. These people who work from home have a secret. I'm not going to read the rest of the headline because it gives it away, but let's say that you're the average person in America. Do you know how big the average merit-based raises in America? Uh, merit-based raise, how, how big it is, like percentages, yeah. I guess? Yeah, percentage. I, I don't know. I, I, have, I have no I, concept. I, I looked this up while doing some research. I don't get merit-based pays or pay raises. <laughs> I haven't in ever, so I wouldn't know. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average merit-based pay raise is 3%. I went and dug that up because what Rachel's going to talk about, the secret that people have, is that, well, you don't get really big raises, even when you do a great job for your company. And if you're somebody that does really well for your company, you get paid maybe you know, 10% more, maybe 10% more. What do you think? You've got to offset inflation, I think, as an employer, right? You've got to have some sort of a finger on the pulse of what's really happening in your community. And if you're a large organization and you've got people in different areas, it's very common to have different pay scales. You know, there was a lot of that going on uh, during the height of the pandemic where people were getting paid 
in San Francisco dollars, but living in Denver, you know, because they could work from anywhere. So they were like, I'll just work from here and get my bigger salary because it's And that makes sense to me, by the way. I mean, I don't understand. I seriously don't understand these companies that penalize people. If you're going to let them work from anywhere, why do you give them a different amount of pay if they decide they want to live in Kansas City instead? Well, yeah, retroactively, of course. I mean, I mean, I get that, you know, if you're trying to attract talent in New York City or in San Francisco or whatever, you know, you've you're going to pay a bigger number for that employee if you're an employer. But then if you subsequently say, and then you can work from anywhere, and then that employee says, cool, I'm going to go move to, you know, Montana to say, well, if you're in Montana, then we only have to pay you this. Whoa, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Easy. Yeah. 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 That's kind of BS. But um, no, there's a different way. It turns out there's a different way of thinking about this altogether. You can be a great employee, make maybe 10% more than everybody around you. If you go for uh, merit-based raises, you may get a 3% raise. In fact, studies show that's the easiest way to make more money is to go ask your boss for a raise. It's the easiest way to solve your income problem. Study after study, year after year part, shows. Part of your income problem. Yeah. But year after year, studies show that your boss wants to give you a raise. You just haven't presented them with the facts. You haven't asked for it in a good way. But there's a different way to do that. And that's the secret that these people have is we're increasingly working from elsewhere, OG. What if instead of being a great employee, you were a middle of the road to crappy employee for two different companies and didn't let them know? Nice. How kick-ass is that? Well, there's a little bit of, um, you have some competitive, what's that called when you, when you play for the Falcons and you say, I also won't play for the Cowboys. Right. You yeah. know, whatever that is. So you, but it's sort of different than having a side hustle, right? I mean, if your side hustle is happens to be in your same industry, it's just happens to be a second full time job. Yeah, you know, and you can pull it off. I don't, I don't see why that's a big. I mean, I worked two full time jobs when I was in college. I worked at the bank and I worked at the uh, shoe store. Both of those were forty hour jobs. The, the shoe store people didn't care. They just wanted to make sure that, from a schedule standpoint that I was going to be there when I said I was. Rachel writes, they were bored or worried about layoffs or tired of working hard for a meager raise every year. They got another job offer. Now they have a secret. A small dedicated group of white collar workers in industries from tech to banking to insurance say they found a way to double their pay. They work two full-time remote jobs. Don't tell anybody. And for the most part, don't do too much work either. (laughs) Alone in their home offices, they toggle between two laptops. They play Tetris with their calendars, trying to dodge endless meetings. Can you imagine if both your bosses want to have a meeting with you at the same time? Doctor's appointment. Yes. Oh, man. Uh, Can we we schedule that half an hour later? That'd be great. (laughs) I got the COVID. (laughs) No, that's too soon. They use paid time off in some cases unlimited to juggle the occasional big project or ramp up at a new gig. Many say they don't work more than 40 hours a week for both jobs combined. They've just accepted the fact that, you know what, if people can't watch me work, I'm going to go ahead and just double my pay. Well, and this is obviously giving the work from home folks a bad name because uh, in our business, uh, both for Stacking Benjamins and for my planning firm, you know, we're completely virtual. And uh, in, in the planning business, we don't have vacation hours. We don't keep track of your work hours, any of that sort of stuff. We have a philosophy of work when there's work. And then if there's not work, you don't have to work. And that served us pretty well because I don't want to have the burden of like going, oh, well, I'm not, I don't know if you can take vacation that week. Like that's that's not up to me. But we've seen lots of studies of employers who are worried about the reduction of uh, work hours and quality of work during the pandemic. And actually it hasn't happened. So, well, you know, that uh, kind of frustrates, that kind of frustrates 
some employers because they want people back in the office, but can't point to efficiency going down substantially. The bad news is, is I was digging, I found a piece that says differently. Uh, You are right when it comes to the average just daily grind of getting it done. This is uh, from Inc. Microsoft did a study of 60,000 employees and found that where remote work really suffers and where these people are killing the organization is when it comes to innovation. Oh, absolutely. And bigger collaborative projects. Yeah. I've been working from home since we moved to Texas in 2014. Every so often I tell uh, my wife, I say, you know, maybe we should just get an office and get everybody back together again, just for, just for the camaraderie and the water cooler talk and the synergy of kind of the buzz, you know, whatever you want to call it of people in the same place, thinking about the same stuff, you know, there's some significant benefits to that for sure. Look at the innovation you and I came back with just for our team here in the basement after FinCon. I mean, we've been remote since day one, but we come back from a conference like that with a, with a bunch of, of ideas and uh, streamlined things. And some of that, as you know, is accidental. You just meet people in the hall and they give you a great idea that you wouldn't have if you were on a Zoom call. Yeah, I, I definitely miss the in-person type stuff. It's funny because I know there's going to be a bunch of people, though. Let's go back to the other side of this, which I know there's a bunch of people saying that these people working two jobs for two different companies and they're working 40 hours combined, they're cheating the company. But on the other side, when it comes to harder work, companies aren't really rewarding harder work in a lot of cases. In fact, one person in this piece in the Wall Street Journal says, the harder you work, it seems like the less you get when the workers with two jobs said, People depend on you more and my paycheck's the same. So if I go work harder for this one organization, my boss doesn't notice it. They just lean on me more. So yay, I get I get ahead, not at all. In many cases, I don't get any recognition. I clearly, as we said at the top of this segment, we don't get paid a lot more for it. Yeah. So why do it? It feels more and more like that premonition that Tom Peters had at the beginning of this century, which was which sounds weird to say. But at the beginning of the century, he talked about brand you, right? You got to focus on brand you. What is your brand? If you're okay with having a mediocre brand, is this bad? Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I Obviously, if you've committed to and are getting paid for a certain level of output, I think it's, your, I think it's incumbent on you to actually do the work that you're being compensated for. And if you feel like your job can be done in 25 hours instead of 40, but they're paying you for 40... I think that you should take on more responsibility or do better quality or or let your boss know. Say, hey, you know, I've got capacity. I'm trying to do everything I can at a reasonable pace, but man, I'm still only finding 25 hours worth of stuff to do every week. Yeah. And you guys are paying me for 40. So either pay me for 25 and then I don't feel guilty and you're just saving the money yeah. or find me something else to do where I can help the organization those other 10 or 15 hours. This is know? definitely, I agree with you. This is a disconnect between employer and employee here. And you know, the bad news is the way a lot of employers are going to try to solve this is that they're going to do all these workarounds, the spyware that that you can't take off your computer. So they know what you're doing and what you're looking at or how long you're at your keyboard or, um, you know, they're going to solve it in these horrible ways right? because it's the fast track and it's, and it's going to make nobody, nobody happy. I agree. It's- well, it just boils down to trust. When you come from a position of, of being tr- trustworthy and trustful of other people and you assume other people are adults and, and, and are, are doing what they should, then your solutions are a lot different than if you assume everybody's out to screw you. If you're an employer, I would encourage you to think of it from the perspective of trust and trustworthiness and say, well, you know, 
hey, you're an adult and this is the work that needs to get done. And if you don't get it done, there's consequences for that. But I'm not going to sit here and stand over your desk every minute of the day to make sure that you're that you're just hammering on the on the keyboard incessantly. Hey, it's time for our TikTok minute. This is the portion of the show where we either look at an inspirational TikTok creator or maybe we poke a little fun at them. We try to make this about 50-50. Uh, OG, today, are we going to poke fun at somebody on TikTok or are we going to be inspired? Poke fun. Casey sent us this one, Stacker Casey. Here we go. This is a TikTok from an app called Iris. This is Iris app on TikTok. This is why you have to follow the politicians. It's literally that easy. Last week, I made a video saying that Nancy Pelosi just filed a new investment since she bought NVIDIA. And look at what happened right after she filed. And boom, just like that, when the news broke, up 11%. These smart people move markets. There's no point to not get notified when they do. And this is why we made a Nancy Pelosi profile on Iris, so that you can see what she owns and you can get notified the second she makes more filings of her investments. When you follow the smart money in investing and you don't do it alone, you typically win. When you follow smart money and you don't do it alone, you typically win. I don't know if you know that. So what you do, you follow the politicians and what politicians are buying and uh, using this uh, this this wonderful app. That's all you got to do. You don't got to know anything. Yeah, there's a little bit of this going around lately about how, uh, how the uh, folks in Congress don't have insider trading rules and they can do whatever it is that they want. So, the bad news uh, is, though, you're not getting this news the second that that the politician does it though you're getting it you're getting it based on their disclosure rules which sometimes can be a little bit later yeah very true and uh, certainly don't know um how how the timing of that works but uh, but I can I can see why people would kind of put this on their radar screen is I don't agree good, with it but you think it's I was going to ask you if you think it's a good strategy uh I mean everything's a good strategy in back testing it so you know, when, when the only reason that you're, we're talking about it is because it's paid off, right? So in the rearview mirror, yeah, it looks like a really great idea. Whether or not this continues to be, I don't know. I'm going to stick with diversification. It's easier. Yeah, see, I don't think so. I went back to look for in the rearview mirror if this actually works around timing. And because this app is so brand new, I don't know that they get the data quick enough to make it have a make it have an impact. Clearly they're trying to build the case that it has an impact, but I'd like to see a lot more data before I, before I go follow it. And then second, I also want to know what I'm buying. Cause I think I told you that uh, in my sandbox account, I was reading about some of the things that Michael Burry, the very famous investor who Christian Bale played on, on the big short. And Michael Burry bought this mining company. And so, you know what I did? I just went, I know better than this. I just went and bought it. OG. I went and bought it because he had it. So if I'm buying something because Nancy Pelosi has it or Michael Burry has it, well, guess what? Now I've got something in my portfolio. You know what my problem is now? I own something. I don't know why it's there. I don't know the method behind the thinking. And when Michael Burry sells this thing, which for all I know, he might've already sold it. I'm still in it. I've got no idea. I don't have any investment policy. I got to tell you, having this mining company in my portfolio drives me crazy. Well, I mean, this stuff has been going on for a long time. Uh, big investors have to disclose their holdings. So you can you can see what Warren Buffett buys and sells every quarter. You don't get to buy and sell it on the same day as, as Warren Buffett does, unless he does it on the you know last day of the quarter type of thing. But you know, all that information is out there. I think now there's a little bit more technology involved where people are creating Twitter bots and 
and things that can like mine that data automatically and produce produce that information kind of out there. But it's already there. You just don't have the same temperament as Michael Burry. You don't have the same temperament as Warren Buffett uh, to say, hey, I'm going to take a billion dollars and put it at this idea and also be wrong for like years and years and years and then be right, you know? So it's kind of a different angle of the X, I think. Somebody who made a lot of money on an IPO is our next guest, Lisa Greer. She was a studio executive at NBC and Universal Studios. Her husband's company went public. All of a sudden, they had tons, tons of money. She started working with philanthropies and uh, saw just what an ugly, ugly world (laughs) that is. is. And she started working to clean it up. She's got a new book out called Philanthropy Revolution. And if you're somebody thinking bigger than yourself, which is going to be a theme this week, our guest on Wednesday also talks about how thinking beyond yourself is a huge key to solving problems with sadness in your life and finding that happiness that many of us are looking for. Well, giving is a big part of that. And uh, Lisa Greer is here to talk about it. But before we get to her, I've got a gentleman right here next to me, OG, ready to take the reins for a second. Doug, you got it, man. What are we ranting about today? There's Stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm excited about Lisa Greer coming on the show because I've been studying philanthropy myself. In fact, it was George Lucas who said back in 2010 that he was gifting the majority of his money to improving education. Based on that statement, I'm hoping that he's redoubling efforts to teach tomorrow's youth that episodes one and two of Star Wars are absolute trash and that Jar Jar Binks is an abomination. And, like George, you and I should both help lead the way towards better giving. In fact, in preparation for this show, me and some of the definitely non-creepy, thoroughly background-checked neighborhood adults worked with the neighborhood kids to pick up trash and recycle cans. All of the money we'll raise doing this actually reminds me of today's trivia question, which is the technical name for a fund that is a charitable giving vehicle administered by a public charity and created to manage charitable donations on behalf of organizations, families, and individuals. Look, I'm not repeating that. Just hit rewind and listen to it again. I'll be back with your answer faster than you can go do some good. Navy Federal Credit Union likes to reward their members for using their credit cards. You know, OG, that if you pay your credit cards off every month like you should... Well, then why not get rewards for them? Of course, don't go play the reward game if you don't pay them off every single month because you do that math. That math works way, way, way against you. But listen to this. You can earn up to 1.75% cash back on all your purchases with their cash rewards card when you sign up for direct deposit. And also when you use the Navy Federal mobile app, you can redeem those rewards as soon as you earn them. But here's the kicker. There's no annual fee, no balance transfer fee, and no foreign transaction fee, so you can use it anywhere. And this is another stickler. This is where they they get you. It's kind of like Jim Gaffigan when he talks about ice. Oh, yeah, the water's free, but you got to buy the tray. That's where they get you. That's where they get you. Well, the way they get you is rewards expire. Rewards here never expire at Navy Federal Credit Union if you're a member. Learn more at NavyFederal.org insured by NCUA. 
Hey, Staggers, it's Military Appreciation Month. You know what that means. We are recognizing all of our stackers in the audience. My good friend Nords, Doug Nordman, who uh, some of you may know, he is a writer in personal finance. He's a guy I'd like to do a shout out to. He is such a giving member of the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early community. Uh, Nords will do anything for you. It's just, just, I think some of that comes from his time on a submarine, like my nephew Colin, who's on a submarine right now, and all the work that uh, he did there. Just a super giving member of the community. And you know what? Uh, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond, not this month, but every month. Navy Federal offers members only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Here's one of their offers in honor of Military Appreciation Month. Join and get $50 when you open a credit card. Of course, you want them to have your whole debt strategy planned out, don't you? Don't just go open a credit card willy-nilly, as mom says. Uh, here's a disclaimer. You got to join and open your membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. So get on it, stackers. Annual percentage yield is a 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open. Maintain your membership savings account to obtain the bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for full terms and conditions. That's just one of the things. They offer 24-7 help for their U.S.-based service members. They have resources all over the place. Head to NavyFederal.org for full terms, conditions, and other offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA Equal Housing Lender. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and me and the neighbors have been hard at work collecting and recycling our cans. You'd be surprised to know that we've already managed to collect $47.50. There's a decimal point in there somewhere, so I'll let you do the math. I know, I know. I don't often pat myself on the back for raising huge sums of money with a decimal point in them, but in this case, I think it's well-deserved. I'm thinking a great home for this pile of cash is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So, uh, like, how does this work? Do they contact me, or do I need to go through the formalities of reaching out to them? Seems like a lot of trouble if I'm giving them money. I mean, do I have to get one of those oversized checks to present to them with photographers? Uh, Well, okay, all right, since I'm being charitable, I guess I'll go ahead and reach out first. But before I go find some contact information for my new friends, old Bill and Mindy, Let's get back to today's trivia. The question was, what is the name of the fund that is a charitable giving vehicle administered by public charity created to manage charitable donations on behalf of organizations, families, and individuals? If you guessed a donor-advised fund, you'd be right. You'd also be in serious need of a hobby. Look, no one should know that off the top of their head. I am now officially creeped out by the three of you who knew that. The largest donor-advised fund sponsors include Fidelity Charitable, Schwab Charitable, and Vanguard Charitable. Fidelity Charitable says its donors recommended 2 million grants in 2020, totaling $9.1 billion, a 24% increase over 2019. Schwab Charitable said its grants totaled $3.7 billion, which was up 35%. Let's throw this over to Joe and Lisa to learn more about philanthropy. And on my dad, shortwave radio, it's my new friend, Lisa Greer. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you. How are you doing? Well, I'm great. Now that we're going to talk about philanthropy, because I feel like we don't get to talk about it enough 
But especially, Lisa, with your insider knowledge about the business of philanthropy, you begin your book talking about COVID and how COVID has changed the landscape. Tell us, what, what does that mean? How has it changed things? Well, it's changed in lots and lots of ways. And um, I mean, obviously, COVID's the worst thing ever. But there are things that came out of COVID uh, in the world of nonprofits that I actually call slick moments, which we could apply to anything. The slick is a silver lining in COVID. And I found, I just made that up. And I found that, um, that slick moments were happening all the time during COVID and they continue to happen now. The most important thing is I think the entire nonprofit world has, especially in the fundraising side, which is their lifeblood, has been doing things pretty much the same for the last actually hundred years. So the sector needed, I feel like a big giant slap or, or something dramatic to happen. I, I hoped it wouldn't have been COVID, but that dramatic thing finally happened, which got people to realize, oh, people don't really pay with checks all the time anymore. Mm. Oh, there's there's these things called, you know, online payments that we can do. I think that you would have thought people would have been doing for the last 20, 30 years. But for some reason in the nonprofit world, they just didn't. The other thing is this idea about these galas, which I, I'm guessing that everybody has been to a gala, has been invited to one of these kinds of things, whether it's in a PTA thing at your kid's school or whatever. And everyone seemed to think over the last 20, 30, 40 years that that was the way you make money. That is your big fundraiser. And it has to be in person and it has to you know, have rubber chicken and it has to have celebrities or whatever. And it has to, has to, has to. And, and what people found out is, you know what, we can raise a whole lot of money without actually having those events. There's still some people are saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we want to do an in-between and do some of those events and some not. But the idea of doing a large event for hundreds of people with the celebrities, but without the dinner, charging maybe the same amount of money and raising a million dollars. If you ask people that in uh, you know three years ago, I think they'd look at you like you were from Mars. Uh, they just didn't think that could happen. And that's exactly what happened. A lot of organizations, some organizations sat and said, we can't do a gala. We can only do them online. That's the only way we know how to do it. We're not changing. Change scary, scary. And But then uh, a few of them, or quite a few actually, said, you know what, let's make the most of this. And guess what they found out? They found out that, you know, instead of one celebrity that you have to pay a bunch of money to, to come and do whatever it is they're doing, you can get 20 celebrities because they're just doing it from their home. And there can be from all over the world. If you're doing work for kids in Africa or Asia or the Middle East, you can have them on your screen at your event. And you couldn't do that before. And so what happened is the people who took that step kind of kind of jumped in the water and said, okay, let's see what happens. They did really well, and many, many made more money than they would have had they done the traditional gala pre-COVID. The innovation, I feel like, is across the board. We're seeing restaurants innovate. We're seeing big banks innovate. So it doesn't surprise me to see that philanthropies are also innovating. I was reading a piece that you you did for Inside Philanthropy. A donor explains how not to ask for money during a pandemic. And you're somebody who, well, your life has not always been, Lisa, like it is now. And I think your story yourself is so very powerful. You begin your book talking about the first gala you went to, but even to lead into that, how did your life change around 2011? Can you tell everybody your story with money? Sure. And and there definitely is a story. Um, I came from a very kind of traditional middle class family in Los Angeles uh, and, you know, went to public schools, went to public university, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Our world of giving was really local. It was PTA. It was occasionally I think I did a project in, when I was 12 with a care organization, large organization to make something for little kids. in I think it was Africa. But that was kind of it. I don't remember going to 
charity events. I don't remember um, lots and lots of solicitations coming in, which of course is my life now. And then uh, after many, many years of working, worked in the studio business, worked as a consultant, worked a number of different careers. My husband had put the very last of his money from a previous exit into this new company. He worked really hard for about 10 years. For most of that, no salary. I supported him. And then uh, thankfully, after all of that, the company went public and we all of a sudden found ourselves overnight being really wealthy. And as an, it was strange. Yeah. As an aside and diving into the work that you did in the studios and some of the other jobs that you've done, I think it would be really interesting. But his business was working with James Cameron, right? Yeah. So what happened was in about 1996, uh, Josh was working at a company in New York and they were going to be doing an educational television program with a very large sponsor. And he was approached by James Cameron. He had done the Titanic IMAX program, but he hadn't done the movie yet. And he sat down with him and he said, I have this film that I want to do. It's called Avatar. He already had the script and I want it to be all in 3D. I think that's the future. I want it to be all in 3D and I'm only going to make it in 3D. So uh, how can I get this out there? And Josh said, and Josh had worked at Universal Studios a long time. And uh, that's where we met. You know, I'm sorry, you know, Jim Cameron, big guy, right? But you, you can't do that because there's only 100 IMAX theaters in the whole world, 50 of them in the US, and no one's going to green light or produce uh, a film that is only in 50 theaters. It's just not going to happen. And especially, you know, because Cameron had done Terminator and everything, it's like, oh, well, especially when you, um, you know, you're the kind of guy who likes to spend a lot of money and right. you know, do these amazing right. films. Yeah, Josh, well, I guess you'd have to do this and this and this. And Cameron said, great, why don't you do that? And, uh, you know, get back to me. And I think Josh kind of was like, well, okay, now what do I do with that? And he ended up partnering with a, a man who had done IMAX programs. And then Josh uh, came up with, figured out how to do this and how to make 3D, not the paper glasses. So it has to be a whole new kind of thing that basically sat on digital cinema. And digital cinema hadn't started yet. Anyway, fast forward, they do all this work. They start with a, a number of different little films to prove that 3D could work. And he's in touch with Cameron periodically saying, yes, that's great, do that. So uh, it was on my birthday in 2010 or 11, we went to London for the opening of Avatar and people were making fun of it saying, oh, it's going to be like the new Smurf movie because it's these blue people right. and, and all this stuff. And I thought, OK, we'll see what happens. And it was this huge hit. I remember going back to the hotel, looking at Rotten Tomatoes and watching the numbers and it was like 100 percent, 100 percent. Oh, my God, this really might work. It was really amazing. But that's kind of when things changed. And then, I was thinking know, that we've accomplishment had been made. Yeah, we've all worn those glasses now, Lisa, 100 times, right? Yes. And I have extras at home, if you'd like. I bet you, I, I, <laughs> I bet you do. So your life then changes literally overnight because of the IPO. And now you two both decide we want to make a big gift to something that we really care about. And so your story opens with one of these big galas that, as you mentioned, a lot of people have been to these. Maybe a lot of us haven't. Can you describe that night and describe what happens? Because I think that this clearly sets the scene for the revolution you think needs to happen in philanthropy. So this was about a year, I think, after the IPO. So we went to this event, a large community uh, organization here in Los Angeles. I want to say there were 500 people there. I get a call the day before and they said, we just want to let you know you're sitting at the table with the head of the organization. Awesome. Oh, well, hey, that's pretty cool. So I'll have a really good table. You'll be able to see the celebrities that are performing. But we hadn't really been to these kinds of things before. I mean, I'd been maybe as a volunteer or we'd been sitting at the really back table, but this was interesting. I want to say this event was in March and we had given them a donation in November. It wasn't large, it wasn't gigantic and it wasn't tiny, but it was, it was a significant donation. 
we sat down at the table and we had dinner and I thought, okay, this is really nice. And about midway during the event, I see these little things, these vinyl covers that look like where you put your credit card in the check-in at a restaurant. And all of a sudden one appears on my plate. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. What's happening now? So I kind of thought, I guess they're going to ask me for something. And Josh gets one too. He's next to me. And this guy is on the other side of me. And I open up this thing and it's not even typed. It's like an old mimeograph machine kind of page that says on it the amount that we gave that previous November. But it doesn't say November. It says 20, whatever it is, the year before. And the rest of the page is blank. And I thought, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. And then on the stage, they say, well, now it's time to look down at the thing that's just been put on your plate. And everybody does that. And, and Josh has it too. And they say the same amount, they're duplicates, but they each have our own name on them. He leans over to us and he says, so this is your pen. You need to write in the higher amount that you're now going to give for this year. I thought, well, wait, wait, it's March. I gave five months ago and Josh has the same amount. Do you want us each to give more than that now? And you're telling us to do this and not asking, telling us to do this. And it's March. And basically, because I gave the money at the end of the year last year, it doesn't count. And this is a whole new year. And that's exactly what they meant. And I was mortified. And I don't even know if I wrote anything. Whenever I see those little covers at a restaurant, I still get kind of the creeps. Just the public nature of it and kind of the public shaming if you don't do it, Lisa, is what made my stomach turn. And well, and also the fact that this is common. People look at their donors like they're ATM machines, you write. Yeah, I think they look at is we're just a big dollar sign. And that's what they kind of see. My new analogy really is, is that they really would prefer we were a piggy bank because a piggy bank is an inanimate object that doesn't talk back. Right. And you oh, can, God. and the piggy bank's full of money. <laughs> and, and so you like that. Wait, wait. And then you can walk up the piggy bank with a hammer and you just mash the piggy bank, take the money and run as fast as you can. And that is fundraising and philanthropy for many people. And that's horrible. It is horrible. What was equally as horrible is your husband also had a, a philanthropy that he wanted to give to that he felt strongly about. They did exactly the opposite. They didn't know what to do with you, Lisa. Well, my husband has Crohn's disease. He didn't want anybody else to have it. It's a horrible disease, if any of you know anyone who has it. And uh, he had most of his surgeries at, at our hospital here. I said, let's each pick something we want to do. I picked my thing and he picked his thing that he wanted to find out who did the best research in the world or in the country that could make sure that other people didn't have to go through what he went through. And especially as a child, I said, great. He says, I'll let you figure it out. And I said, he said, why should you call Stanford? Because he figured Stanford equals research. And I said, yeah, but we're in LA and all of your surgeries have been here. And this is where your doctors are. Maybe they do research. Turns out they do tons of research. They just don't promote it at all. So we went there and nobody knew who we were. And it took seven months for them to accept $2 million from us. Seven months. <laughs> seven months. And, uh, and me calling every month or two, we'd have a meeting. And then the guy would be like, oh, I have to do this meeting, whatever. And he'd give us these numbers to try and scare us. And I'd say, oh, okay, any of those are fine. And he says, okay, I'll get back to you. And then we literally wouldn't hear from him probably ever unless I called. And so a lot of people will say, well, are, are, you're a different kind of donor. And I, I say, no, I'm a very, very typical donor. The only thing that's different about me is I don't know anybody else who would wait seven months to have somebody accept $2 million from it. Yeah, it, it, it was really crazy. Yeah, just take my money, please. I, <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it, was, it was unbelievable. The good news is about it that I have to tell you is that some organizations learn from their mistakes really well. And I found out as I was writing the book, actually, that Cedar sinai the, the hospital, had made this story part of their onboarding program for all their development people, all their fundraisers, so that it never happened again to anybody. And I thought that was great. Well, let's dive into that because clearly this isn't working for the philanthropies themselves. You write that the, the average tenure 
of a director of development is 18 months. So clearly it's not working for these people either, Lisa. They're hating what they're doing. They can't stay around in this process. You also write that only 19% of donors have trust in the philanthropies that are around them. So I guess the tip of that iceberg, where do we begin on solving that disconnect? So part of this is very, very simple. Where you begin is realizing that people are not piggy banks or ATM machines and that we're all living, breathing human beings. I think it's People or Us magazine that has a section on, oh, celebrities, they put on, they're just like us, or they, you know, they put on their pants one leg at a time. It's the same thing. If a fundraiser realizes that they also are a donor and everybody's given something to somebody, and how would they feel if somebody said to them the things they're saying to, to prospects? So really the overarching premise is, and it sounds so basic, I get crazy emails. And sometimes I'll call the organization if I know someone there and I'll say, this email is completely off-putting. It's the end of our quarter. Send money now. And I'm like, it's not my problem that you didn't make it for your, to your quarter. <laughs> I mean, that has nothing to do with the impact. It's one of my big tips is whenever you're sending out a mass email to people, uh, some sort of fundraising thing, send it to yourself first the day before. Make sure you wait until you've got 50 emails in there. Look at all those emails and ask yourself, would you open that email? That works really, really well, actually, for them, because most of the time they wouldn't. You cancel your email thing. You don't say, oh, we've already paid the company. We have to send it. You actually redo the email to something that sounds appealing to somebody, but not in a pushy way that, that you personally would open. And forget that they're asking for $10,000 or a million dollars. Think that they're asking for $5. And that is a big problem with with nonprofits today is that the people who give $5 or $25 are relegated to like the, the cheap seats. And there isn't a consideration that those people in the cheap seats might just love what you do and may have some other money, probably do, might come into some other money at some point and might become a bigger donor for you. That doesn't happen. If you were an under $1,000 donor in those cases, you are put into a completely different category than everybody else. And this is something that I've just discovered recently. If you're a recurring donor, so all of us probably have something where you give somebody a credit card and you get charged every month for it or every year, something like that. So if you do that for an organization and you give them $100 a month, okay, which is, is a great way to support an organization. And the for the organization, it's great. So two things that are crazy about it. One is I, I talked to someone the other day who said that he didn't want to accept those kinds of donations. Why? Because when the credit card expires, it's too hard to get the new number from the person. Oh, Lord. That, Right? That is like arcane. That's crazy. And the other thing I learned is that if you're a $100 a month person and you've given for three years, that's $3,600. You're still kept in the under $1,000 group and they treat you accordingly. That's crazy too. So I, I find myself saying this, that's crazy often in this world. And so I'm trying to change it. Well, once again, it's treating people like, like just a wallet or a piggy bank where they have so much money to give and that's it. Just thinking about people according to these groups that they fall in. And I love what you're saying about nurturing donors. A lot of these people, you know, millennials and Gen Z, so many studies, as you have seen, Lisa, show that these people want to give and they start small and you've got this huge generational wealth transfer happening. These people are going to be your future donors of tomorrow. Right. And so maybe don't treat them like crap today. That's, you know, maybe yeah. first, first thought, right? Yeah. Yeah. You've got a story that illustrates how you really like to be treated. And it's this uh, gentleman, David Levinson from Big Sunday. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I think he, he kind of is almost the model for that. There's been a lot of articles on him doing that. And this is this is a guy who was a screenwriter, TV writer, who was doing a, a volunteer thing thing at his synagogue and it turned into a massive citywide and now almost statewide event. And it's, it was called Big Sunday. They would do it on one Sunday a year. Now it goes on. I think every day they have something going on and it's fantastic. And 
I kept hearing about starving people in our city and that the food banks were running out of food. So I called around and I said, who knows kind of all the social service organizations in town? And they said, this guy, David Levinson. So I called him and uh, I said, I'd love to meet with you. And so he came over and I said, look, here's our deal. Here's where we come from. I want to know how I can fix this. And I know I can't fix this in a big way. What can I do? And uh, he says, you know, I don't know. What are you thinking? I said, well, here's my idea. If you do a program. And I said, I don't want to do a program. I just want to get food into people's hands. So why don't you tell me how much it would cost to feed everybody who's hungry in Los Angeles or you'll fill up the food banks for everyone in Los Angeles for three months. And I just picked that out of nowhere. And he said, "Okay, I'll find out. I don't know the answer. So number one, him saying I don't know the answer as opposed to BSing me with something was brilliant. And and those are the little those are those are the actual really wonderful parts of my day when somebody actually <laughs> says I don't know let me find out so thank you when and somebody when somebody not BSing you is where the bar is Lisa the bar is fairly low yes that is exactly where the bar is actually so so he goes away he comes calls me about two weeks later and he says can I come over and meet with you again and I said sure and I don't require in person meetings but I thought it was nice so we sit down at the table and he says so I've been doing some studying I said great so what's the number and he said. I'm not going to give you the number. Okay, number two great thing that he did, right? Actually having the chutzpah to say, I'm not going to give it to you and not worry that I'm going to run around and scream or cut his head off, right? So yes, he's treating me like a person, just like like a normal person. And he said, well, I realized that by doing that, you know, the food's going to be gone after three months and there's nothing sustainable about it. And I think we could take the same money that you're talking about, that, that you might be talking about, that we might put into that and put it into actually put it into a program, but put it into a program that can be supported by other members of the community here long-term. And he hired one person. I might have one or two people now doing it, but it kind of it doesn't run itself completely, but mostly. And the idea is that people every month, they would say, okay, we're collecting tuna, canned tuna this month for the food banks. So they, they go into the community and they say, and everybody, I, they'll go to churches and schools and they'll go to Bank offices did this, and the, the cast of some TV show actually decided to do this. It's a one-time thing. This month, everyone's going to bring cans of tuna. And if you don't want to bring cans of tuna, you can give us money, and we'll buy the tuna. And then we will take it all over to the food banks, and they will have tuna for a year, right, which was great. And it was so successful that people all over were like, well, I want to be in the noodle month, and I want to be in the this month, and whatever. And then it got to be Thanksgiving, and everybody everywhere wanted to do it. And now they feed gazillions of people, and it's been going on for, I think, about nine years now. So and your money became seed money, which right. created this attention from other people that made them want to do it too, which is, I would think this multiplier money is the most powerful money of all. It is absolutely the most powerful money of all. It's that exponential piece is phenomenal. And I've seen it happen when we gave the uh, $2 million to Cedar sinai It's an endowed share. And so the endowments put off typically 5% a year. So $2 million puts off 5% a year. So they get $100,000 a year that they can work with, which I thought, well, what are you going to do $100,000 in a medical thing? That's probably yeah. not going to get you far. And so I didn't have high expectations. This was one doctor who wanted to do this work in um, IBD, uh, irritable bowel disease uh, genetics, like the genetics of that, so we could stop that. Uh, now it's been nine or 10 years and he has 25 people working for him in a, in a research lab. They've come up with dozens of different ways of solving different things. They do personalized medicine with this. And I didn't understand, like, how does that hundred thousand dollars turn into that? Turns out he was then able to go to foundations and say, look, we have a private party who came forward and gave us this money. I think he got a million dollars on top of the hundred thousand because of the hundred thousand, someone gave a million dollars like three months later. Yeah. And I thought that is amazing. So it's the exponential piece is not and not to be ignored. That's really wonderful. I'm, I'm thinking about this from our listeners point of view. 
You know, a lot of people that listen to the show, we talk a lot about donor advised funds. I got the feeling reading your book that donor advised funds, while you admit that they're pretty awesome for people to put money away for the future, that you find them pretty frustrating. Uh, yes, I, I think they're an excellent tool. Uh, by the way, a, a lot of times people take the money from their, uh, usually it's appreciated stock. They put the money in pre-tax money and they put it in a donor advised fund and they uh, are able to then get the tax deduction right at that moment. The money sits in the fund, often gains interest, and also also has a fee that's attached to it uh, for, the, for the organization to manage it. And then when you decide you want to give money to an organization, you just contact the donor advised fund. I do it from my cell phone. And even if I'm in the middle of a meeting, I can be sitting there with my cell phone and say, this sounds really good. I'm going to give you $500. And I literally, it takes me about a minute and I can poke a, a few keys on my cell phone and the money immediately there's a confirmation that says, yes, you're going to be getting a check from the donor advised fund. Um, it's always subject to the fund. And if you want to hear when that doesn't work, you can read about it in the book because it is up to the fund to decide if they want to accept the place that you want to give to. Now, in some cases, Fidelity and Vanguard and some of those big companies, they, uh, they'll just put it through as long as they're a 501c3 in good standing. But there are some other organizations that um, are treated differently under this new legislation that actually get to put their own personal viewpoints in uh, to decide if they want to send that payment on or not. There's some ways around it. I can, as of now, I can move the money from that fund to another fund that will accept it. But, but that was a big surprise for me because it's an advised fund. It actually isn't your money anymore. For me, being able to sit at a meeting and say, I'm going to do this and I don't have to write a check. I don't have to do anything at the end of the year because all of my giving happens that way. And so I get an itemized list from them. It's awesome. I love it. The downside of it is that there are people who put their money in and there is no time frame by which you have to give the money onto a charity. Yeah. So the downside is that, and right now, and it is, that's something that is growing exponentially. And right now there's about $150 billion sitting in these donor advised funds and where a lot of the big companies will say, no, don't get mad at us. We have lots of money going out. Well, what they never talk about in those announcements is how much money is going in. It was growing at 16 or 17% the last time I looked. So it, it, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. So the problem is that I, they, a lot of people say, oh, those people just want to have their money and get the tax deduction. They never want to give it to a charity. And I don't believe that people are that awful. So I think the reason might be that perhaps those people had a first meeting with somebody like any of the people I just mentioned. And it was so off-putting because they were trying to dip their toe into the water and say, what's it like to give? And the meeting was so off-putting and offensive that they said, screw it. I'm going to leave the money to my cat. And in the meantime, I'll just put it in my donor advice. Yeah. No, I totally agree when you say that they really don't know who to trust. And you look at the rating services that are out there now to evaluate charitable giving. I feel like most of the rating services are around fees in the amount that they spend, right? So how, how do we evaluate who we should trust with this money that we built up in a donor advised fund or money that we want to give? What kind of questions should we be asking Lisa to, to make a decision? Right. So thank you for that question. It's an excellent one. So first of all, the, the rating services have started to understand that what they were doing and just basing everything on how much you know the tax return and how much money they spend on admin costs. Uh, a couple of them, I think Candid is the big one that's first did this, started also creating a rating system on uh, impact, which I think is wonderful. So that's a really great first step. And that is something that pretty much everybody I know wants to know. I don't care if it costs money to get there. I just want to know that ultimately something good is going to happen at the end and there's going to be some impact. Uh, so I, I think that with the, the admin cost thing, really the first place that I think it needs to change is with the fundraisers who are there trying to raise the money. And like you just said, I want those people to be knowledgeable. If you're going to be investing money, you want to know 
what's the investment going to do for me other than bring me back more money? Like what actually happens to this money? And one of the questions that I always ask whenever I'm doing any kind of even for-profit investing is who's your competition? And my other question is how well do you play with others? So do you have partnerships? And you would ask that in for-profit, non-profit, those would be normal questions. I only have two more questions. You talk late in the book about boards and oversight of the organization. Are there questions we should be asking about what type of oversight does a charitable organization have or how does the board work? Yeah, I think it's a great question to ask. I think that they do have turnover. Some of them have term limits, which I think they should. And uh, it is something great to get involved in and, and learn how those work. I'll give my favorite example. I, I think it's in the book is I was on the board of a large national organization, uh, the local chapter actually. And at one of the board meetings, everybody's decided to go around the room and talk about why they were on the board, which I think is an excellent thing to do until you find out that three quarters of the people in the room say that they're there to make friends. And I thought, oh, that's not good. <laughs> I'm lonely. I mean, they were, they were, yeah, I mean, they, and lonely, exactly. They were very straightforward about it. In fact, I, one of the big things that I'm a proponent of is mergers, is, is having less of these organizations around that do the same thing. And everybody can be more unique and they can be stronger and two together can actually, again, exponentially uh, be a much better organization. One of the big reasons is the boards can't stand it because if you're there to make friends, that's your social circle. Don't take that away from me. And that has nothing to do with the mission and nothing to do with while they're there and nothing to do with why donors give money. And I find that offensive. So I think it's very important. Uh, and I do a lot of work with boards, helping them to put together the right kind of board. Uh, it needs to be diverse. Someone told me a story recently about going to a board of a girls organization in Washington, D.C. You probably already guessed the punchline. And it was all men. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> You know how many people are screaming at their device right now as you say that, Lisa? Yeah, I, I'm sure they are. And I, I, I do a lot of that every day, actually, when, when I hear these crazy stories. But at the beginning, I thought, well, maybe I just get more of them because I'm more out there or something. But there is no shortage of, of information to start uh, reacting to because every day I hear something or see something or get a crazy email or a pitch that, that doesn't make any sense or somebody who sends me an email to, you know, dear John Greer or something like that doesn't even get my name right. Or, or my favorite thing is this new thing that some of the direct mail people, consultants, I guess, came up with in the last year where you send somebody a bill. It says a second notice, you know, in red, like the stamp and the whole thing. And that's how they're getting money from you. Oh my. Uh, <laughs> isn't that, and you're supposed to just pay it because you think it's a second notice and you've got to pay the bill. Like, well, and then you talk about trust. Like, well, right. yeah, if that's going on, of course people aren't going to trust these organizations. Yeah. How do you expect me to feel kindly about you when you're sending me third notice for something that's voluntary? Yeah. It's really totally unbelievable. When you and Larissa Kostoff created this book, did you find there was anything surprising just in this act of creating this and putting all your thoughts down on paper? Yes. Uh, one of the surprises was it was both easier and harder than I thought it would be. I'd never done this before. What I did is I recorded my rants, like kind of a little bit of what I just gave you. And I recorded them for months on my phone. And that's what was really the, the genesis of the book, because I said, oh, what am I going to do with all of these? And originally I was ranting to friends and I, and I thought that was not very nice for me to keep ranting to friends every day when this stuff happens. So uh, putting it all down, the big surprise was I realized that I had way more than one book could handle, yeah. and which kind of was a little bit disturbing, actually. And and I thought, well, I, I've really got to fine tune this. I also learned that some of the things that had happened to me early in being a philanthropist still were painful. And I, I think I was surprised that I hadn't gotten over those, uh, which was a little bit surprising. And even now, when I talk about some of those things from the book and I'll read the chapter, uh, I'm thinking, I can't believe that that one 
stupid thing that somebody said or way that someone treated me or guy that yelled at me at a board meeting or person who commented on my handbag and it was a cheap thing that wasn't anything and I knew it was all just pandering. Those things still bother me. Then you start getting emails from people all over the world and saying it changed my life. And, you know, I've always agreed with you know, fundraisers saying I, I knew that was the right way to do things. But my bosses keep wanting me to do it the old way. And now I feel like I've got this book. I can say, you know what? I'm not wrong. And and then the donors were saying to me, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one that this stuff happened to. And so they, I get lots of emails from donors saying that I'm, I'm I'm the new sort of group therapy through a book for them. So all of that was incredibly gratifying. And I'm, I'm really glad I did it. That's fantastic. Well, I absolutely loved it. And it's so just everything that you talked about, about trust and in your first statement there about the hurt that you felt early on, just, I I think should show anybody raising money for anything, just how important it is that you take that trust that you have with donors and potential donors. The book is called Philanthropy Revolution, How to Inspire Donors, Build Relationships and Make a Difference. And I'm assuming, Lisa, it's available everywhere, right? Everywhere and audible and uh, digital and all sorts of things. Yes. Wherever you want to go, you'll find it. Well, thanks for hanging out with us and talking about trust and about giving. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Derek. And when I'm not working on the hook for Joe's mom's next greatest rap album, I'm stacking Benjamins, baby. Big thanks to Lisa. You've had a similar experience, OG? Yeah, a little bit. Um, Certainly not at the level that she is at, but um, one of the places that we uh, regularly donate money to. Put a little pressure Uh, on you? Yeah, just a little bit. A little thumb on the scale. It just, it doesn't. Hey, why don't you, why don't you, why don't we go out to dinner? Let's go out to dinner. We can talk. I'm like, I don't need to talk. (laughs) I read your letter. I see what you're going to spend all the money on. Also, I despise meetings for the sake of having meetings. So it's like, you got to know, you got to read your audience, man. Like, you know, you don't, you don't get me to the table with a meeting. <laughs> well, and you're also not attracted to the, the, Hey, the shiny bauble thing versus what the, what the mission is. Like, I agree with her. Let's talk about the mission more. Don't send me to this fancy soiree and not talk at all about the mission. Why do philanthropies insist on doing it that way? Are we, are we that shallow? Well, I mean, there's a little bit of that, I think, a little bit of uh, look at how important I am. I went to the such and such of a charitable ball, you know, or whatever. I got dressed up fancy and the table that I was at raised a million dollars for children's cancer. That's how important I am. You know, I ate Um, very well and I helped somebody else while, while taking care of me, 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 me. Yes. Anyways. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. Just. Just tell me what you want the money for. Make sure it goes in the right place. I also agree with her on another front, which is looking at a 501c3 that is working on a shoestring budget is probably not the place you want to give your money. You have to have good people to accomplish a mission, which means I think you got to do more research than just, hey, how much of this is going to salaries? Well, and I know that uh, that's, that's an issue is trying to figure out like where where that break even is. You know, because, yeah, you do need people to run it. You do need people out there whose job it is to, you know, to raise the money, right? And yet, if it's too much, then they get a lot of grief on the other side of that equation, right? Where it's like, well, 10% of your money goes to salaries and maintenance of your building, like, you know, or whatever the number is. So it's got to be reasonable, but you definitely need to have good people working for you. Otherwise, you know, the thing doesn't get done. All right. That's going to do it for today. Hey, a lot of people to thank. Thanks so much to you 
for all of the reviews that you've given us for the show. That has been fantastic. By the way, I am not done sending out books. So if you're wondering if I'm sending you a book for your review, the answer is most probably for people that gave us one late. We said that we put your name in a hat. Uh, I think I have enough books, OG, to send everybody one. I've been doing a lot of traveling, so it has been a slow go. But if you're wondering, what's this about books? If you don't want to give us a five-star review, please, please don't make a book be the reason why you do. But if you were going to give us a review anyway, just take a picture of it, send it to me, and I'd be happy to send you a thank you for helping other stackers learn what it's all about to be a stacker. Great reviews like this one. I love this one when you can convert another stacker. Listen to this. 40066 wrote, converted my wife. This podcast went from me asking my wife if I could play a personal finance podcast on car trips together to her saying that it's okay if I played Stacking Benjamins to her asking if we could listen to Stacking Benjamins and finally to her insisting that I save episodes so she can listen to them in the car too. She's not into podcast or personal finance, but she can't get enough of SB. That's how entertaining Stacking Benjamins is. How kick-ass is that? Nice. Bam. That is fantastic. Thanks so much for that review. And, uh, and if you have a moment to tell other people that definitely helps other people know just what a great community we have here of people helping other people with their money. All right. That's going to do it for today. Last but not least, if you want to make better decisions in the future, you want to dream bigger, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. That's the interface where you'll see OG's team's calendar. Their team is taking clients. So Having the right people in your corner makes all the difference. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG to see if his team is the right team for you. Doug, come on back, man. Here you go. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Lisa Greer. Maybe skip the big dinners and parties and instead have frank conversations with the places you're giving. Who are their partners? What's the actual work they're doing? We all give better when we're more involved. Second, while maybe having two jobs isn't the ethical answer to your money problems, at least asking for a raise can be, and there's also nothing wrong with starting that side hustle as long as you're putting in the required time and effort for boss number one. But the big lesson? Bill and Melinda haven't returned my call, so I thought I'd research to see what's maybe distracting them And I guess they've got a couple other things going on. I mean, probably not taking my calls because they're sitting with their lawyers. But I'll find someone to take my money. And it sure as hell isn't going to be a lawyer. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, check out our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn more about philanthropy, be sure to check out Lisa Greer's new book, Philanthropy Revolution, How to Inspire Donors, Build Relationships, and Make a Difference. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Saul Cihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Taylor Stevens with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe and it's all free. 
It's called The Stacker, and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. For a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way, type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, leaving you with this safety tip. Don't substitute your gym's spin class with your dryer's spin cycle. Believe it or not, they are not the same. Welcome to the after show. A lot of the time on the after show on Mondays and Wednesdays, we talk about movies. Did anything funny happen in Austin? Not really, but I've been watching a few uh, programs. Oh, programs. I've been watching some programs. Mm, what you been watching? I'm kind of caught up now on season 5.5 of Billions. So that's still uh, that's still trucking along, which is uh, great, like always. And the new Showtime special. Hold on a second. I got a question for you before you get to that. My brother-in-law and I were online playing some Outriders on the Xbox together. Fun game. Not a phenomenal game, but a fun game to just hang out and uh, and chat. Uh, and we hadn't done it in a long time, so that was nice. But while we were you know, out there reading the world of this bad stuff, we were chatting. He just started Billions. And he said it isn't as good as Succession. He actually likes Succession better than Billions. And I know that you've watched both of them. And I told him that you thought, and this is why I'm asking you now, because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I got the impression that you thought the opposite. Succession is fine. It's okay. It's good. But Billions is what you like way better. I think that the writing in both of them is really quite good. I find Billions more believable than Succession the argument that they're having in succession about the family and, you know, the dynamics of that and, you know, whatever is, is a little off of the believability scale, but, um, but it's different. Like billions is just about acts and roads. It's about those two characters and all the people that support them. And, and for people that don't know, you know billions, one is on the side of the law the other one is a bajillionaire. Yeah, hedge fund manager. They're yeah. constantly fighting each other. Yeah, and then when they're not, they still are. When they're on the same team, they're still against each other. I mean, it's it's just very interesting in how they how they tell that story. So I'm on Team Billions on that argument. I, I have talked to other people who have said that they 
you know, got a season or two into it and we're kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. But it gets better as it goes on, I think. You know, just the writing gets sharper. And Succession's good too, although it's a lot darker. Succession is a lot darker than than Billions. That's funny. Yeah. He really wanted me to watch a show called The Patriot, which is now a couple of years old. It is about a guy who is an assassin for the United States government. He does this secret stuff and everything goes foobar immediately on his job. And, and just as an aside, as an outlet, this guy plays a guitar, but he gets very honest when he performs and he likes to perform at open mic nights. In fact, in one episode, somebody had to get him off the stage that was in on it. They walk in and he's on stage performing in front of like 12 people going, I didn't mean to kill the Iranian terrorist, but you made me. You may, he's, he's, he's just, and every, everybody in the place is looking at him like, man, that's a wildly specific lyric. <laughs> you know, I'm working for the CIA and I had to kill the terrorist. Uh, they're like, wow, uh, who's, that's not the Edmund Fitzgerald, you know, it's a whole different thing, but talk about dark. I think he really likes these dark shows. In fact, he asked me, he's like, so what'd you think of the Patriot? I'm like, okay, I'm three episodes in. I don't know if I can hang out with it because it's so damn dark. Uh, definitely funny, but holy moly just just painful. So I think it depends on where you come at it from. I just started a new show called uh, The Chair on Netflix, and I didn't expect it to be as funny as it is. Maybe I'll do a review of that one later, but uh, Billions and Secession, huh? I got a new one too, if you're, if you're open to a new one. Yeah, let's do it. American Rust. American Rust. It looks like this is on Showtime. That's right. And uh, let's listen to a trailer. Man can have two reasons for doing the right thing. You'd rather I left you out of this going forward. I get it. No hard feelings. But I got a right to know. What kind of trouble are you in? I have to handle this my own way. Are we ever going to see each other again? And God coming from the sky. Just do your job and I'll watch out for you. And God coming from the sky. Because I love you. I love you. This case is poisoning my town. probably gonna have to take the blame for this your interests are opposed if i help one it could mean harming the other i don't care who else is looking for him i want him first wow holy cow talk about high stakes you can hear it in that trailer oh gee everybody's got a ton on the line there of course you heard uh, jeff daniels who is just such an iconic actor and can change. I don't know. He plays so many different personalities. I saw him last in a series called Godless, which I can mm-hmm. highly recommend where every time he came on screen, you knew something horrible was going to happen because he was just a loose cannon in that. And here it looks like he's the sheriff. Uh, yep. He's the lawman in this town in um, West Virginia, I guess. And uh, he's he's kind of the one in charge. There's an opening scene where uh, obviously the town's kind of down on its luck and uh, there's an auction going on, so auction for the properties. And one of the main characters, 
house has got a big sign on the front, you know, slapped on says you foreclosed auction, whatever. And so they're doing the auction, in the town square, there's all the investors there, you know, getting ready to bid on it. The, the auctioneers telling about how great this property is on five acres and that stuff. And all the townspeople show up and kind of park their pickup trucks around this whole auction and get out carrying their hunting rifles and just stand Whoa. there, just standing there. And, you know, you can see the investors are kind of looking around and, and then one of the guys goes up to one of the investors and says, Hey, uh, uh, I hear you're thinking about buying old Billy's property. Boy, that's a nice property. Do you ever do any hunting? This is a pretty nice gun, right? And da 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 like kind of obviously intimidating the investors. They all scatter sure. to the wind. The auctioneer. Somebody, buy, somebody gets it for a dollar? No. The auctioneer kind of gets all ticked off and the sheriff's standing there, Jeff Daniels. And he says, are you going to do anything about that? He says, group of my townspeople rightfully uh, congregating to show off their oh. hunting rifles. <laughs> I don't see any crime. <laughs> oh... So, uh, oh. and then he says, well, I'll make sure that uh, deputy stone who is, it shows you out of town. And he says, are you, are you kicking me out? He goes, no, sir, but that's an awful nice BMW you got there. And I'd hate for anything to happen to you while you're in our town. <laughs> wow. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's military appreciation month and we are giving out shout outs to all of our friends who have served in the military and let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend og who spent time in the military and of course we know what a giver he is even when he pretends like he's being uh, mr surly navy federal offers member only exclusive rates discounts and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals visit navyfederal.org celebrate and you'll see all their military appreciation month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. 